1: Hello and thanks for joining us. I'm Kelly Barner, owner of Buyer's Meeting Point and the host of Dial P for Procurement here on Supply Chain Now. Each week, my business history co-host Scott Luton and I travel back through time to bring you the best business stories, innovations, people and surprising facts. Some of which you have probably heard of before and others of which are on the verge of being forgotten. If you enjoy our unique blend of storytelling and business history, take a minute to subscribe to the podcast and share a review. That will help others find us. In this week's episode, we're going to mark a key moment in business history, a moment that just also happens to be closely tied to pivotal world events. In fact, the history of currency in the United States was primarily driven by the funds needed to wage wars, and that's what we're going to learn more about. On March 10, 1862, the U.S. government issued the first paper money in $5, $10, and $20 denominations. Known as greenbacks for the green ink color selected to prevent counterfeiting, the currency could not be exchanged for silver or gold, but it was backed by the government. These were the first federally issued legal tender notes. But they weren't the first paper money printed in what would become the United States. The actual first paper money was printed in 1690 in Massachusetts. In order to fund King William's War, an armed conflict between England and France waged over North America's lucrative fur trade, the colony of Massachusetts started printing money on February 3, 1690. This money was like an IOU between the colony and the soldiers. Then, in the years running up to the Revolutionary War, British Parliament regulated paper currency in the colonies, and as a result, foreign coins like Spanish dollars were often in use. Once the war began, the colonies no longer considered themselves subject to parliamentary guidelines and they started printing their own money. And so did the Continental Congress. Unfortunately, none of it worked out. All of the currencies depreciated rapidly due to overprinting, and the British made things even worse. They knew that there were practically no defenses against counterfeiting, and so they printed lots of fake currency just to continue the depreciation. Each of the colonies printed its own money, and they weren't equivalent. So a dollar in Massachusetts wasn't the same as a dollar from Pennsylvania. And you may have heard the expression, not worth a continental, Well, Continentals were the currency printed by Congress during the war, and they weren't worth a thing. Now, jumping ahead a few years, in 1861, the United States government issued demand notes, still like IOUs, representing a loan from the people to the government, but a loan that didn't earn any interest. They were issued by the United States Treasury under the leadership of Salmon P. Chase, Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of the Treasury. Chase was tasked with establishing a national banking system, basically in order to fund the Civil War. And although he is the one that oversaw the first true paper currency printing, he's not the person we associate with important developments in the American financial system. That honor goes to Alexander Hamilton. A century before Salmon Chase, Alexander Hamilton was the first Secretary of the Treasury. Under his guidance, The U.S. government established a financial system that allowed the federal government to assume the state's war debt and then charge tariffs to pay it off. Crazy, right? Back then, the government would actually pay off their debts and then retire the currency and pull it out of circulation. Now, maybe it was Alexander Hamilton's relative fame, even before the musical. But Salmon Chase wanted to be better known as Secretary of the Treasury. It was his responsibility to design the new notes. So in an effort to increase the public's recognition of him, he put his own face on the new paper currency. That only lasted for six years. In 1869, his picture was replaced by George Washington's. But going back to Chase, some people have speculated that it was an insatiable desire for higher office that led him to feature himself on the first $1 bill. And he did have political aspirations. He actually ran against Abraham Lincoln in the 1860 presidential election. He had served a short time as a senator from Ohio, and he was one of the best-known anti-slavery Republicans in the country. When Lincoln beat him out for the Republican nomination, he threw his support behind Lincoln and was rewarded with the Secretary of the Treasury position after Lincoln won the presidency. Although they worked together, Chase never ceased to remind Lincoln that he had some leverage over him within the Republican Party. Maybe that is why, as soon as Lincoln secured the nomination for re-election, he nominated Chase for a seat on the Supreme Court. Chase eventually became the Chief Justice and served in that role until his death. A few more interesting facts about Chase. He is one of the few U.S. politicians to serve in all three branches of the federal government. Legislative, because he was in the Senate, Executive, as the Secretary of the Treasury, and Judicial, on the Supreme Court. One of his last acts before moving from the Treasury was to put In God We Trust on U.S. coins. He was honored for his role in introducing the modern system of banknotes by being depicted on the $10,000 bill, which was printed from 1928 to 1946. Ironically, I'm not sure that did very much to get him that notoriety he so desperately wanted. Have you ever seen a $10,000 bill? Because I sure haven't. Last but not least, Chase National Bank, a predecessor of Chase Manhattan Bank, which we now know as J.P. Morgan Chase, was named in his honor, even though he had no affiliation with it, financial or otherwise. Systems of currency are critical, but so is the manufacture of the currency itself. And that brings us to another historical angle on paper money. Stephen Crane, owner and operator of a paper mill, was the American revolutionary Paul Revere turned to when the colonies needed to start printing their own money. His son, Zenus Crane, would enter the family business and expand it, starting an additional mill that catered specifically to banks and other financial institutions. Zenas's sons, Zenas and James, started taking money printing to the next level by vertically embedding a silk thread in the banknote paper as a way to mark the denomination of each note. Now, when the South broke away during the Civil War, Crane had to find a way to supplement their lost business. And so they started manufacturing paper collars for men's shirts as a way to get by. In 1879, W. Murray Crane managed to secure a federal contact for printing currency even though he was only 26 years old at the time. And that cemented the company's role in history and money-making, both literally and figuratively. Crane is still the sole provider of paper to the United States Treasury Department's Bureau of Engraving and Printing 140 years later. Their main manufacturing site is located in Dalton, Massachusetts, in Berkshire County, the westernmost part of the state. The campus includes two paper mills, raw material processing facilities, and a research and development facility. It is the same site that W. Marie Crane was working from when he secured the company's first order to produce U.S. currency paper. They are constantly innovating new ways to protect U.S. currency from counterfeiting, never forgetting the lesson that the British taught the colonies back in the Revolutionary War. Ironically, most counterfeit bills are identified because they are too perfect, not because they are flawed. Here are a few other interesting points about paper currency today. Now, I like to collect paper money so I can spend it on things, but some people collect it as a hobby. Called notifilists, These people are usually looking for unique printings and denominations, preferably in uncirculated condition. In September of 2020, a 1934 U.S. banknote set the world record for the most valuable type of its kind sold at auction. It is a $10,000 bill, which was sold for $384,000. Now while we call this paper money, our currency isn't actually made of paper. Bills are made from a cotton and linen blend with silk fibers running throughout, something we know the Crane family figured out very quickly and an innovation that has stood the test of time. One of the reasons for the inclusion of cloth is to help the bill stand up to use. Each bill is designed to be folded up to 4,000 times before it's at risk of ripping. Almost half of U.S. paper currency in circulation today is in $1 bills. And that particular design also holds the distinction of having the oldest design in circulation. It has run unchanged since 1963. The largest denomination the U.S. Bureau of Engraving and Printing has ever produced is a $100,000 gold certificate, and it has a picture of President Woodrow Wilson on it. These bills were never put into public circulation and were used solely for transactions between Federal Reserve banks. Only one woman has ever appeared on US paper currency, and it was Martha Washington. She was featured on the $1 silver certificate from 1886 to 1957. And no set of fun facts would be complete without the really gross stuff. Did you know that 94% of bills are contaminated with bacteria, and 7% of bills have dangerous pathogens on them? Makes you want to reach for a credit card just thinking about it. In addition, 90% zero, 90% of banknotes test positive for cocaine residue, and that is regardless of denomination. So you don't have to be wealthy to take a hit, I guess. Today, there is over one and a half trillion dollars worth of US Federal Reserve notes in circulation. And while that is a lot of money, I personally happen to prefer finding a 10 dollars or $20 bill in the pocket of a coat that I haven't worn since last season. On that note, it is time to wrap up this edition of This Week in Business History. Thank you so much for tuning into the show each week. Don't forget to check out the wide variety of industry thought leadership available at SupplyChainNow.com. As a friendly reminder, you can find This Week in Business History wherever you get your podcasts from, and be sure to tell us what you think. We would love to earn your review, and we encourage you to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. On behalf of the entire team here at This Week in Business History and Supply Chain Now, this is Kelly Barner wishing you all nothing but the best. We'll see you next time here on This Week in Business History.